You are listening to Faith Church's sermon from this week. We are a church that is committed to loving Jesus for life and loving others to life. We hope that this message encourages you to follow Jesus with your whole heart. May be seated. So tonight, today, I'm going to flip those things. I'll probably say this morning yet tonight, um, but uh, we are starting a sermon series, as Pastor Landon said, on our sermon on a sermon on the mount, and we're doing it a little bit differently. We're going to not start with the beatitudes that are at the beginning of the sermon series are at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, but we are going to start in verse 13. I'm going to basically come back. I believe it'll be around the Lent sometime. Um, it might be a little bit later than that. I will come back and touch on the Beatitudes at that moment. Um, but today starts that sermon series, Changing Our Lives from the Inside Out. Uh, there was many different beliefs. There's many different beliefs about the sermon on the Mount. It's certainly been one of the greatest teachings ever recorded. But with that said, it has also been one of the most divisive, divisive uh, in many areas. You're going to see if you just, you know, take your Bibles and flip through or your, or your phones or whatever, and you flip through the next several chapters, you're going to see things talked about that uh, are hotbed issues in the church and in America. And so, um, this is not a sermon that is easy to swallow in any way, shape, or form. Some believe it's not for us. Um, there is a group of people out there that say that this is for when Christ returns and a new kingdom happens and, and all of that thing. And uh, I don't believe that to be uh, true, but I, I need to tell you that that's out there. Some believe it's just a dream. Some believe that we will never match up to what Christ says in the Sermon on the Mount. There is some, some times that he will hear Jesus say these words. You have heard it said that this is what it is to, let's for instance say, commit adultery. But I tell you the truth, it's actually this. And he, he, he ramps up the, the, what it takes to commit adultery. And it is, it is, and this is the reason that most people say it's just a dream that it would happen um, today. Some believe it's for, again, when Christ returns. I, I want to give to you, a, you know, I could have tried to write this in my own words, but um, on the next slide, there is a, uh, a, a quote from this, the commentary that I love to use called New American Commentary. And here's how they put it. There is an already not yet tension in the Sermon on the Mount. The sermon remains the ideal or goal for all Christians in every age, but, um, I looked up, but which will never be fully realized until the consummation of the kingdom at Christ's return. So the reality here is, is this sermon is not going to be fully realized until Christ returns and we go to be with him in, in perfection. But we aren't going to grasp it fully. Um, just because we're not going to grasp it fully does not mean that we are not to try to live by this sermon. That's the problem. Most people say, well, you will never grasp it until Christ's return. You will never understand it until Christ's return. And so the automatic next statement 
is this. Don't even try. And so go do what you're going to do. Go, go make decisions that you're going to make. And even if it's in direct, quarrel, direct, uh, direct uh, uh, conflict with the Sermon on the Mount, go ahead and just do it. And that's an issue. It, this, this, this is so powerful, and I found this very interesting, this, this sermon, that it catches the attention of philosophers and many others. Even Gandhi a Hindu. Listen to what he had to say. Next slide. But the New Testament produced a different impression, especially the Sermon on the Mount, which went straight to my heart. Here's a guy far from where he needs to be. He reads all the Old Testament and the New Testament, and he comes to the conclusion that the New Testament um, produced a different impression than the Old Testament did, but not just the New Testament, especially the Sermon on the Mount, which went straight to his heart. Wow. It's in his autobiography, by the way. So to best explain this section, let me begin with the following thoughts. This Matthew 5, 13 through 16. One of the roles I have as a middle school boys basketball coach at King's Academy is, is that I do not condone sideline play. Now, you might say, what's sideline play? In other words, when you're sitting on the bench, um, if I have somebody on the bench, last game I only had five players, so I didn't have anybody on the bench, but... If there is somebody in the, in the, on the bench, their responsibility is to be in the game. Now you say, well, how can they be in the game and on the bench? Well, they should not be wrestling with the guy next to them. Trust me, I've had that. They should not be playing Pokemon Go. Trust me, I've had that. They should not be on their cell phones. They should be watching and seeing what is happening in the game so that when I call on them as their coach and I say, go into the game and play for so-and-so, they know exactly what they should be doing and there is no surprises when, you get, when they get onto that basketball court to play. It's not like, well, where do I stand on defense? What do I do on offense? No, they've been watching the entire time while they're on the sidelines. The interesting thing about this section of the Sermon on the Mount is, is that actually our heavenly coach, if you would, doesn't even want anyone on the bench. You see, when you become a member of his team, that is when you are placed in the game of action, that is when you come to know him as your Lord and Savior, the issue is, is that in this section, there is no bench sitting there is no sideline play. You see, you can come out of the Beatitudes, reading the Beatitudes, and you can do that on your own time, um, but, and you may be tempted to believe that we are to live lives that are like hermits, kind of do our own things, and yet we are called to so much more in our Christian lives. And so the Sermon on the Mount kind of comes out swinging right away, especially 13 through 16. Christ is saying, listen, friends, I don't have time for sideline games. 
And quite frankly, I don't have time for you to be sitting on the sidelines. I need you to be in the game. So here's a question. Next slide. How do we know if we are playing sideline games with our relationship with Jesus Christ? How do we know that? Because obviously he doesn't want us to play sideline games, but you know, I wouldn't be a very, uh, I wouldn't be a pastor worth his salt if I, uh, if I, if I said to you, don't play sideline games in a relationship with Jesus Christ, let's pray, benediction, go home. You got to know what it is to not play a sideline game. If you, if, you, if you don't want to be on the sidelines because Christ doesn't want you to be on the sidelines, then how do you get in the game and how do you know that you're in the game? I think the two illustrations given here in Matthew 5, 13 through 16, will show us what it looks like to not be playing sideline games. Here's the first one, first point. You are not playing sideline games if you are saturating the world. Now, I'm going to explain that in just a second, but I'm going to, we're going to throw up that verse there in just one minute here. And yeah, go ahead. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under foot. Now, I want you to notice the very two first words that Christ speaks here. You are. It's kind of like my favorite football team, Penn State. We are. But you are. He doesn't say you are when you become retired. He doesn't say you might be if you've been baptized. He doesn't say you are when you do this. He doesn't say you are if you have this. He doesn't say you are if you have a degree. No, what he says is as soon as you come to know him as your Lord and Savior, you, welcome to the crowd, are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. And now our American minds automatically want to go to salt. And what do we, you know, my, my heart doctor is very big on this. You know, no, no added salt. But salt tastes so good. But that's not at all what Jesus had in mind. Not at all. You may have heard it's what Jesus had in mind because we as Americans like to take scripture and kind of rip and roar into it and say this is what it means in America, so this is exactly what Jesus meant, but it's not what Jesus meant. You see, to the Jewish minds that were around at that moment in time, they would have never thought about that, the taste of salt. No, what they were thinking of was the amount of salt that was made that was needed just to preserve a piece of meat. Because they didn't have refrigerators. And so when I say earlier on, you are not playing sideline games when you are saturating the world, we are not talking about just even one stake, according to what I've read in dictionaries and encyclopedias. We're not talking about just one stake having a little bit of salt sprinkled on it to preserve it. We're talking about that baby is saturated with salt. And they literally muscled it into the meat so that the meat would not go bad. 
And so when Jesus comes to the disciples and others who are standing around at this moment, and he stands on that mountainside and he says, you are the salt of the earth. He's not talking about just a salt shaker. He's talking about pouring salt onto a steak and then saturating that steak. Man, I'm getting hungry. I'm going to have to go out after this. But you, and, then, and, then, and then making that salt go into that steak so that it stays fresh. We must permeate or saturate our society and with redemption. One of the ways we do this is by seizing corruption and preventing moral decay, being the voices in the wilderness, if you would. That's what Christ is calling them to. He's saying, don't stand on the sidelines. Get involved. Stand up for what is right. Do what is right. Saturate your world with the salt that you are. Wow. We must be careful to not lose our saltiness as the middle of verse 13 says. Here's what it says. If the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? Now automatically we go to a, a scientific thing. It's not a scientific thing. It's not that Jesus is saying that, you know, once science, once salt loses its saltiness, you can't, and it's probably true that it can't be brought back to saltiness, but that's not what Jesus is driving at. Actually, the words that are translated here are be defiled. So what Jesus is saying is, is that you have to be careful that you don't get so involved in the world that you become a part of some, you, you have some other mineral join the salt. One of the problems they had in the Jewish, in the Jewish setup and, 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 and in this day and age was is that they had people who mixed things with salt. You know, so they could maybe make a buck or they could just, they, did, they didn't have to give as much salt away so they would mix other minerals in there and other things and then the salt became defiled and their steak no longer was good because the salt wasn't really salt. And so what happens in our world is, is that sometimes we allow the, the, the truth of the Word of God, this, this very true and powerful um, Word of God to be watered down. And we mix a little bit of minerals in there because, you know, man, that burns if we say what, what it says. And so we better, we better mix some minerals in there so that it doesn't hurt so bad when when someone who doesn't believe our truth hears it. And Jesus is literally warning them about this at this moment in time because he sees it coming. Even in his age, he sees it coming. He sees salt being mixed with other minerals and, and other things and, and he sees Christians trying, to, trying to, to live of the world and live in the world and live of it and, and be a part of it and yes, we need to be a part of it but we need to be separate from it but, but he sees Christians r rubbing shoulders in ways that, that they're losing their saltiness. 
And he's saying, I'm not even talking about scientific things right now, folks. I'm, I'm talking about being defiled. So what Jesus is really saying here, friends, is be careful that you don't become defiled like the salt in the ancient days when other minerals would mix with it. Because when you are defiled, here's the bottom line. And Jesus does not. One of the things that I love about the, the Sermon on the Mount is, is he doesn't mix words. You know what he says? You're, you're useless. Yeah. Brett Kindig, when you mix with other things and you are not as salty as you should be, you are useless to the kingdom of God. Wow. You see, when salt got mixed with other things back in this age, there were big issues, as you can imagine. The food would go bad, and then that salt, well, that's not good for anything other than being trampled by men. When we just let evil win or twist truth or add to our own version of truth to it, our saltiness is defiled, period. When we don't stand up, when we stand on the sideline and we try to cheer the team on, and we don't get involved in the game. We don't seize the moment. We don't stop the corruption. We let the moral decay just continue and we keep our mouths shut. The meat will go bad because the salt is no longer salty. When we water down the truth, we do the same thing. And here's the facts. Watering down the truth may bring you more followers, but at the end of the day, it's not going to lead growth because the truth those people are following isn't the real truth. Get it? No, seriously, like when we preach the word of God and we, and we come to the word of God in this passage, if we water down the truth in, in any passage of scripture just to get people to come in, at the end of the day, those people are going to walk away frustrated because you haven't given them the entire truth. You've given them portions, you've watered down portions, you've given them little bits and pieces, but you haven't given them the entire scriptures. And they walk away. Flustered. Why did I even try this? Because we watered down the truth. So we didn't say and stand up for things. And, and, and trust me, I stand here as your pastor today. Um, it's real tempting sometimes. When someone looks at me and, and I'm not sure what they believe or what they're standing on or whatever, and they say to me, Pastor, what does your church believe about this? Whatever this is. <laughs> there are real temptations sometimes to say, well, you know, we believe and give them half of the story. It's real. 
And I bet you it's real in your life too. I don't really want to tell them the whole thing because, man, that might turn them off. But then you've lost your saltiness. Simply powerful. It makes totally new sense to me today. I've never read this scripture passage like I'm preaching it this morning, this, if, this evening, whichever time you're watching it. I've never read into this like this. But it makes sense. Then Jesus continues in Matthew 14, 5, 14 through 16. Here's what he says. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Here's what point number two says. We are not playing sideline games if we are shining his light. I want to be clear here. You are the light of the world because he gives you the light. You're not shining your own light. You're shining his. You're reflecting his If our goal in life is to let people see our light, our wisdom, our thoughts, our hopes, our dreams, we have missed the mark big time. For what Jesus wants out of the Sermon on the Mount, um, uh, missed the mark big time for what Jesus wants out of the Sermon on the Mount, because the light of the world is the reason we have light at all. Just like a city illuminating the countryside, or a light in a house providing light through the entire house. We are called to let his light in us shine through our good deeds. Not so people will turn their eyes to us. No, he's very clear in this scripture passage. He wants them to turn their eyes to to the Father in heaven. Now later in this series, we will get to chapter 6, where he again challenges us to another standard. And he says... You should not do certain things out in front of people. And to be honest with you, in chapter 6, it is the, 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 the context is, is that you should not pray for a way that people will see you praying and look at you and say, what a great prayer you are. But this isn't in contrast to this. He's not being hypocritical. What he's saying is, is that in this standpoint, when you let your light shine, remember who you are and how you got your light in the first place. You're illuminating his light, turning people towards him. These two metaphors, salt and light, bring us up some things that lead us to remember that we are not to be playing sideline games, but to be in the game fully, which leads to some powerful applications. They're on your sermon outline, and here they are, and things to know. Here's number one. Being salt and light does not mean we are called to control secular power structures. 
Some of us, some, some of us have grown up in churches where we believe that, 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 that somehow because we are the salt and light that we are to control all the secular power structures. That is not the call of what Jesus Christ is giving in the Sermon on the Mount. Secondly, he says, being salt and light does not promise us that we will be able to Christianize legislation and values of this world. It doesn't promise us that. It doesn't give us that. Does that mean that we should just let Christianization of everything go and let it fall off the face of the earth? No. But the point is, is, is that he doesn't promise that that's going to happen when we are salt and light. And some people believe it will. But that's not promised in being salt and light. Next, being salt and light does demand of us that we be active preservative agents in our world. Sometimes this will not be easy, but it is our calling. How are we doing with that? How are we doing with that? You know, when you take a long, sobering look at our world, I'm not sure how good of a preservative agent we are doing. Me, me included. Sometimes it's easier just to go, mm, I'm going to zip my lips. And then next, being a salt, being salt and light leaves no room for Christians to hide in their communities, churches behind their four walls. If you're not outside actively challenging the decayed truth, you could be caught in sideline games. Be careful. And here's how we can be careful. It's not them versus us. It's Do you understand? Like it's not that they're somehow too far gone. You know, sometimes I cringe when I hear somebody say, yeah, them people, those people on the outside. You mean the people that are just like you before you knew Christ? Yeah, those people. That's what we have to be careful about. David Kinnanman, and I probably just butchered that name, says it this way. Being salt and light demands two things. We practice purity in the midst of a fallen world, and yet we live in proximity to this fallen world. If you don't hold up both truth and tension, you invariably become useless. You, you invariably become useless and separated from the world God loves. Wow. Practice purity right in the midst of a fallen world. You want people to respond to Jesus' Christ's call in their lives? How about you live it out before them? Show them what it looks like. Do it for them. And watch how they respond. 
If you want to go deeper with this subject and some application, if you flip your sermon outline over this, this, this evening, this morning, um, you can find some other applications that I found in some Puritan writings that I found on the internet. But I just want to leave you with this today. How are you doing being salt and light? Not trying to bring taste to people, but, but how are you doing in saturating the world with your salt? How are you doing in your little world, in your little community, in your family? How are you making sure that moral decay doesn't take over? How are you doing at illuminating his light so that when you walk into the world and you walk into the situation, it's no longer a dark situation, but it becomes a light situation. How are you doing at pointing people to the Father in heaven? And not trying to make your wisdom, your rights, more important. Sermon on the Mount is full of punches, good punches, but powerful punches. Because Christ says, listen, I don't want you to just survive as a Christian. I want you to thrive as a Christian. I want you to amp it up and live this lifestyle before men. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this night. We ask you, Lord, to minister to us now as we close with this hymn today. I love to tell the story. May we love to tell the story. May we tell it from the mountaintops. May we tell it in the decay of today. May we tell it with all those things that Pastor Landon mentioned earlier before prayer. All those situations. May we be salt and light. May we not stand as decay takes over. May we shine our lights that are given by you so that we point people to the Father. May we do this in humility, and in your love for those people who so desperately need to hear this good news. For it's in your name we pray this all. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. We hope it encouraged you in your walk with Christ. You can find out more about Faith Church at wearefaithec.com. 